Welcome to episode 17 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where we're going to talk about various considerations with respect to shelter and sleeping arrangements. Again, in particular, we're going to talk about Tyvek as a material. We're going to talk about how to set up ridge lines and tarps. We're going to talk about wool blankets. Again, bivy bag condensation and getting away from that, an important question from somebody about whether or not there should be such a thing as a wilderness license. Welcome, welcome to episode 17 from a very windy northeast of England. I think I brought the wind with me back from Patagonia, which is where the last episode came from. Um, a couple of little bits of housekeeping to start off with. Some of you have uh, asked about how can you skip forwards and backwards to particular questions. Um, on my YouTube channel, um, there's a feature there where I can put timestamps in. You can click on the time which is like a link for that particular question and you'll go to that part of the video. So if you're watching this anywhere other than YouTube and you really want to go to a particular question, go over to my YouTube channel. There's a link, um, certainly on if you're watching this on my blog or listening to this on my blog, there's a link on that page which takes you to my YouTube channel. Um, if you're more widely listening, if this is embedded somewhere, if you're listening on iTunes, just go to my blog at uh, paulkirtley.co.uk and they're in the sidebar on the right hand side is a link to my YouTube channel and the videos are all on there as well as well as being on my blog but of course you're only going to get the show note links on my blog because again it's difficult for me to put them everywhere it's time consuming to put these out every week and actually recording these doesn't take so long it's actually putting them all onto the blog onto the youtube channel onto the podcast um, delivery systems that's actually quite time consuming and i don't have anybody to help me, me, me with that i don't have an assistant that does that for me i have to do that on my own in my spare time, in the evenings, you know, when it's dark, when I'm not outside, um, back from a day hike or back from a trip, that's when, I, that's when I get that stuff online. And I do try and do one every week. I don't always manage it, but I do try and get one of these out every week. But that just means that you have to understand where to find different things. I do this for free. People are asking more and more of me. I'm trying to do as much as I can. But remember, I do this for free. Um, I do it to help people. I really enjoy it and I really enjoy the community of people around this show and around my blog in general. But please do remember this is not a commercial enterprise where I'm delivering a service. Also, um, just, just, a, just a point about some uh, negative feedback I've got recently. I did one of these episodes from my office where you know I've done this is the 17th episode 16 episodes of these have been outdoors while I've been out and about doing other things I'm out for a hike today in the northeast um, and I've been in Wales for the past week before that I was in Argentina before that I was in Scotland before that I was in Canada and I've tried to record shows wherever I am try and share a little bit of that with you just even if it's just a little bit of the environment that I'm in I do one from my office and I get complaints. I get criticism that I'm not an outdoorsman, I'm not an outdoors person. Some idiot also suggested, because I had so many books, 
that all my knowledge was from books and that I never went outside. You people must be stupid. Just look at the rest of my YouTube channel. Look at my blog. My blog is just gone five years old. The amount of outdoor content on there is incredible. Also, not meaning to sound arrogant here, also I run a bushcraft school. I teach outdoors a large proportion of the year and when I'm not teaching outdoors I'm preparing materials to teach outdoors whether that's online materials or whether I'm preparing new courses for the following year or preparing new expeditions for the following year. This is what I do full time. I teach people outdoor skills, wilderness skills, how to enjoy and look after themselves outdoors and I do a good proportion of that, not in front of a video camera like this on a YouTube channel or on my blog, but I do it outside one-to-one -one with people. If you don't realise that about me, um, you haven't looked in any depth to my background or why I should be sat in front of you talking and fair enough, maybe I should present that more clearly on every single episode. You may have just come to my um, YouTube channel and found it, but I teach all the time and I teach a lot of the time outdoors. Also, before that I used to run an outdoor education um, bushcraft school for another very well-known outdoorsman. So that's my background. I do, I've been doing this professionally for at least 10 years, teaching full-time outdoor skills. Um, just because I record one episode inside with some books behind me doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm not an outdoors person. I can't believe the rubbish that comes out of some people's uh, fingers when they're typing. YouTube, it's improving, but the, the, the amount of abuse that just seems to be standard on YouTube, I just find incredible, particularly when you're trying to put out information for free to help people. So not to spend too much time on those negative idiots. Um, the vast majority of people who watch these videos fully appreciate them. I get some great comments, I get some intelligent conversations in the comments, um, I get people adding extra things that I've neglected to mention or a different perspective. It's great, let's just keep that up, let's ignore the, uh, let's ignore the fools um, or the people who've just got an axe to grind for some reason that are jealous or that uh, want to somehow knock other people for trying to help other people. We can all sit there online making snipey comments and not contributing anything. Um, my view is that, you know, one of my role really is to contribute to a community of people who are interested in these skills. And okay, everything I say you may not agree with, that's fine, we can have an intelligent discussion about it. But if you're just gonna be abusive, I'm not interested. You can write a really long abusive email um, that isn't constructive and I'll just delete it. You can write a long email that's constructive, that has some different viewpoints that we can discuss. I'll enter into an intelligent grown-up discussion with you. That's, that's the game that I play. I'm not going to get into flame wars or I don't respond to trolls online. I know there are some people who try to troll me. They come onto my blog occasionally and um, they just try and cause trouble. Not interested. It's very, very easy. Um, for me to press a delete button. I don't, I'm too busy trying to help people who really want to know about the skills and the knowledge um, that I have and that my colleagues have, you know, people like Ray Goodwin and David Scott Donnellan and the other people that we bring to the fore through Frontier Bushcraft and through my blog and through my podcasts. That's my goal, that's my mission. I am not interested in engaging with people who just want to cause trouble. Your comments will be deleted, they won't be given any time, they won't be given any air, so please don't bother. But that's not to, dis to discourage people from having an intelligent discussion and from offering constructive criticism or offering different viewpoints based on their experience. That's exactly fine and that's the intelligent, mature type of community that I want around my material. 
Um, so anyway, slight rant over. Um, let's get into the questions. First question, wool blankets versus sleeping bags. Again, we've talked roughly about these subjects before. This comes from Josh and Josh asks, Hey, Mr. Kirtley, um, I have a question on the debate of wool blankets versus sleeping bags. Do you have experience with wool blankets? Are they worth the price? And if you do have experience, what is your layering system for keeping warm throughout the night? Thanks. Well, Josh, I have talked about this in a previous episode, um, but just to reiterate very, very quickly, because you've asked the question in a slightly different way and you've asked about layering, which is a specific question. Now, typically I only use wool blankets when I'm sleeping in front of a fire. So it might be in an improvised shelter or it might be just around the fire. I like a wool blanket in that situation because they're not easily damaged by fire. So you can benefit from the warmth of the fire um, and you're not gonna damage a really expensive down sleeping bag, for example. Also, if you're sleeping on improvised beds, modern sleeping bag external materials, the, sh the outer materials are quite easily damaged. And again, unless you're gonna put a sleeping mat or something down, wool blankets much more resilient. So I like to use them in those sorts of situations. But if I'm doing a journey or you know, modern journey, so a hiking trip, or a canoe trip through a significant amount of wilderness. So I'm not just going into the woods a little way, camping, doing a, th a few things in that area, practicing some skills, where I'm actually covering some serious distance, you know, going out for a week and going out for several weeks and covering hundreds of kilometers by hiking or canoeing, um, then I'm gonna take more modern stuff that's going to be lighter weight that's going to be easier to look after um, because frankly I'm not going to have the time to build shelters every night and that's not necessarily um, ecologically sound these days and more people um, in a particular area building shelters every night if they're not using them on a long-term basis then it's a it's a lot of resources that you're using for um, not very much use yourself and I try not to do that and also it's just time anybody that's built a natural shelter will know that they take a good amount of time to build a decent one and they're not really well suited to moving on day by day by day if you're covering distance on a hike if you're hiking you know 20 kilometers or you know 15 miles a day and i know that's not exactly right but let's just use that um, as an equivalent or the same you know you, if you're skiing or, or snowshoeing or canoeing you're going to take a shelter with you if you're covering any distance um, and if that's the case i'm going to take a sleeping bag that's going back to the question that i was asked about uh, military kit um, you choose the kit that is appropriate for what you're doing. That was back in episode 16, we had a question about military kits. So again, just my philosophy, choose the right kit for what you're doing that suits the aims of your journey or your activity. I do like wool blankets. I do think they work. Generally, I find I need two to keep really warm and I need two to keep water off, definitely. If there's any rain coming in or there's any significant moisture underneath, two wool blankets is much better than one. I've slept under an overhanging tree um, in the shade of a dense tree in a really heavy rainstorm with two wool blankets on a bed of, uh, on an improvised bed, and it's kept most of the rain off me. The outer wool blanket was wet, the inner one was a bit damp, but I was still warm and dry on the inside, uh, with a fire as well, which helps. Um, so that, that's my view. Worth the price, depends what you're paying for them. There are some blankets that are really expensive. You go and buy a Hudson's Bay blanket from the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada, you're gonna part with several hundred dollars at least, $300. Canadian at least whereas you can go and buy a second-hand army surplus blanket for you know less than $20 or less than 20 pounds depending on where you are and they're durable they last a long time but they're heavy when they get wet they get even heavier they're hard to dry out and they work best with a fire they work 
um, in those circumstances. So those are my views. I do like them, but um, not in every situation. Horses for courses, really. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, Bivy bag condensation is the next question. And getting a lot of wind on my face here. I hope it's not affecting my microphone too much. Apologies if there's some wind noise here. Okay, so this question is from Peter and he asks about bivy bag condensation. He says, what is your proper way to sleep in a bivy bag and how do you handle the condensation, which even the expensive Gore-Tex bags seem to have? Um, what do you think are the main reasons for massive condensation and what are your best tips for a comfy, warm and dry night? Thank you and all the best, Peter. Well, we've, we've addressed this question in a couple of different angles in the past about what, what's best when people have asked general questions about bivy bags, but I'll draw out a couple of things. If you're getting a lot of moisture in your bivy bag at night, um, and again, bear in mind, I am talking from the experience of having slept in the mountains in Scotland in bivy bags, just in a bivy bag, no tent, um, sleeping out in the hills, to sleeping in the Arctic forests of northern Sweden in the winter at minus 35 to minus 40 degrees Celsius um, in an improvised snow grave, so out in the open, in a bivy bag and an appropriate sleeping bag in the winter um, and everything in between that, um, sleeping outside in a bivy bag for hundreds of nights of the year in the UK that's where I'm talking from. That's the experience that I'm talking from. There are two main reasons why you get a lot of moisture in your sleeping bag. One is that you breathe into your sleeping bag or you breathe into your bivy bag, that you put the bivy bag over your face and that that breath is condensing on the inside. There is a lot of moisture in your breath and on a cold night that will condense on the inside of the bivy bag. That is the cause of a lot of moisture when people use bivy bags. Keep your face outside. Put a hat on if your head's cold, bring your sleeping bag uh, hood around, dry up, but keep your face outside and breathe outside. If you need to, put a balaclava on like you might do in sub-zero, um, uh, sub-freezing conditions. And if you really, really, really can't deal with the cold air on your face, take a jacket and put the sleeve over your face and breathe through the sleeve like an elephant's trunk. But don't breathe into your sleeping kit because not only do you get condensation on the inside, your sleeping bag gets wet, your clothing gets wet. None of that is good. Okay, so that's the main thing. Don't breathe into your kit. The second one is that people put too many clothes on when they go to bed. And then as your temperature fluctuates through the night, you get too warm you sweat excessively, that puts moisture into your stuff. It makes your sleeping bag colder because it becomes damp, it loses loft, you, you, you have all the, the issues with water being more conductive and less air in your sleeping bag, as well as there being moisture on the inside. Um, so that again is the thing, don't put too much on when you go to bed. Um, one layer of thermals is the most you ever need, even in Arctic conditions socks possibly, hat possibly, and if you need more in insulation, put a jacket over the outside of your bivy bag rather than, um, rather than having all your clothing on because that is a much better way of doing it. Um, those skills I learned initially from working with Lars Faltz, the father of Swedish survival training and Swedish military survival training, and it works extremely well in dry, cold conditions. Clearly, if it's raining, you maybe want to tarp over the top of you um, as well. Um, and then the other thing you should be trying to do all the time is when you can, air out your sleeping gear in the morning, air out your sleeping bag, hang it up. First thing, when there's still warmth in it from your body warmth, get it up into a tree, into the breeze, and get that evaporative um, loss, taking the water away from your sleeping gear as much as you can. 
Um, and there's a good article, or I think it's on the Frontier Bushcraft blog, on my company blog, about getting the most out of your sleeping gear. Um, I will share that in the show notes for episode 17 at paulkirtley.co.uk. But hopefully that helps, Peter. Right, um, tarp over the ridgeline. Um, this is from Chris, and Chris asks, um, Hi Paul, I finally managed to get around the technical issues of watching your videos, good, um, and have been enjoying uh, and sharing your, uh, enjoying you sharing your experience views on the topics covered. Um, I'll keep this one short, as you know I have plenty of requests. I use a surplus poncho uh, and tarp on short trips which I arrange a ridge line and hang the tarp over. For longer and group use I have an old 3x3 DD uh, tarp which I suspend using ridge loops. My question being what are the pros and cons of hanging the tarp over or under the ridge line? Uh, cheers for any input and keep the videos coming. Well you're very uh, welcome Chris, thanks for um, viewing all the videos, I'm glad you're getting a lot of value out of them. Um, I think there's a marginal difference here Chris. Um, and it very much depends on whether or not your tarp has tape loops all the way along where you want the ridge line. Um, if you can suspend the tarp underneath then it's going to have less water running underneath it. You know, If you get any water running along the ridge line and you've got the tarp over the top of it, you could conceivably get water running underneath and dripping down where the, the, the line and the tarp meet. Um, less likely if you've got the tarp hanging down from the line, but not impossible either. Also there's a question of height. Um, if you've got a large tarp that's got quite long tape loops on it and there's a maximum height that you can get your ridge line up before you, um, before you suspend your tarp, um, throwing the tarp over the top might just give you a few more inches um, of height to, to work underneath, to walk underneath, so that might be a consideration. Um, but I think the most important thing you can do either way is get that ridge line really tight and then you're not going to have any sagging um, and that doesn't have an issue with a drop in height then and it isn't, there isn't an issue with water running down to where the tarp is and then dripping. So I think it's a marginal difference at the end of the day. Um, the only other thing as well is, of course is unless there's some sort of fixture between the tarp and the ridge line, you, when you're trying to tension guy lines you might get the tarp sliding along, um, whether it's hanging down via loops or whether it's over the top, although they do tend to slide more if they're just over the top. But you can, if you can attach a Prusik loop at the uh, apex at each end and attach that to your guy line, attach that to your ridge line, sorry, hold it in place and then uh, tighten your ridge lines, uh, your guy lines, sorry I keep getting ridge lines and guy lines the wrong way around. Um, so just to repeat what I'm saying, you've got your ridge line, you put your tarp over the top, Prusik loop from the apex on each end, onto the ridge line, hold it in place, then tension your guy lines, it doesn't slide around then. Um, that can be a good way of doing it, but other than that I think it's marginal. Do what works, do what, do what works for you in terms of what's easy to set up, what's quick to set up, what's quick to take down. Sometimes it can, with big tarps in particular, it can be easy to have them separate when you're taking things down. Take the tarp off, fold it up, pack that, take the ridge line down, hank that up nice and neat, put them together, that's easier than having the whole thing kind of tangled up. Um, so it's really horses for courses again, do what works in the situation and what suits the tarp that you're using. I'm not dogmatic about that at all. Hopefully that helps Chris. Um, question about Tyvek, 
this is going to be a short answer. Um, this is a question from Mike Manners via Twitter. I'll put the picture up on the video um, just so you can see the pictures that Mike has sent to me. And he sent me a couple of questions about Tyvek um, and I'll group them together. First one is, hi Paul, um, what do you think of using a Tyvek browse bed for winter? Thanks from Montreal. Great stuff. Second question, which is very similar. Um, hi, Paul, another Tyvek question for you. Using as tent, it's light. What do you think from Montreal? Well, yeah, it's a very light material. Um, I haven't used it as the sort of bed that you're talking about. It looks pretty much like a bivy bag to me. I have no experience of using Tyvek as a bivy bag. If anybody who's watching this does or listening to this does, please go to my blog go to my blog, not comments on Facebook, because only people on Facebook can see those, or not comments on YouTube. Go to my blog, please, and leave a comment under this episode about your experiences using Tyvek as a bivy bag. I have no experience of that. I don't know if it works well or not. Um, I know they work, it works quite well as a lightweight tent. I think the main advantage, it seems to me, is lightweight. Um, again, I've not used a Tyvek tent in anger. Um, and therefore, if anybody has, in terms of wind resistance, in terms of water resistance, again, please leave a comment and Mike will, uh, Mike may get some benefit from this. But to be honest with you, Mike, you've got this stuff, you're using it, maybe you should be letting us know how you're finding it. So again, Mike, I know that's a bit of a woolly answer, but if you can go and leave a comment under episode 17 about your experiences, you left these questions a little while ago, back in October, um, when I was uh, when I was away, um, if you can let us know how you've been getting on with these things, you might have used them significantly more since you asked the questions. You've clearly got the kit. Leave us a leave us a little uh, roundup of what your findings are so far, and then everybody gets to benefit from that. Um, and again, going back to my my point, remember it's about kit and it's about bushcraft and choosing the right kit to go with the skills that you're going to be using or using the right skills that suits the kit that you're using um, and the two are separate considerations so there's always going to be new materials coming along the skills stay pretty much the same materials change that can have some influence on skills sometimes sometimes we can do more sometimes we can't do as much with it um, but it allows us to do other things particularly if it's lightweight we can move faster we can move quicker we can set things up quicker but that might have some other limitations so it's always good to to, to group everybody's experience together. The world is changing faster than any of us have chance to keep up with these days, particularly in terms of material science and new products. It's good to hear from everybody and hear what their experiences are. So thanks for putting that out there, Mike, and hopefully we all learn something from that discussion. Last question, I'm going through these quite quickly today because it is cold and windy out here. Um, I'm towards the end of a hike and I'm just conscious that the light is starting to go. The, the camera's compensating for it so far, but as we know from previous episodes, when it gets properly dark, this camera needs to be turned on to infrared and I'm trying to avoid that today. So, wilderness license. This might take me a bit longer to answer. This is from uh, Michael Mercer from Mick and he apologises for, this is by email, he apologises initially for it being quite long, um, but he, he gives some context which is good. The question is, what are your views on having a wilderness licence? I ask for several reasons. The wonderful access laws in Scotland provide me with pretty much all I need um, to go out and enjoy some stunning places and enjoy spending time living pretty close to nature. 
but I have never been anywhere where I failed to find a sign of fires, litter and even human waste occasionally just lying on the ground. Yeah, it's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, and um, he says the worst case was a campsite near where we parked in a fairly remote place. When we returned to the car, we found the fire was still alight. Rubbish was everywhere, including yards of fishing line, as well as a, tri a trail of human excrement flowing down a rock towards the lake. As I walked past it, I could not believe it. As I approached my car, I felt responsible because I had seen it and done nothing. So I went back, made good the fire, picked up seven black bin bags full of rubbish, including several full unopened beer tins. This kind of behavior puts the access laws at risk of being changed. Further, I noticed a house nearby in an idyllic location up for sale, and I wondered if this was maybe a common occurrence at the site. If so, and I lived there, I would campaign to stop the access rights too. Some interesting points there, Mike. And the second part of Mike's question, which is related, education is key to stopping this kind of behavior and has the added benefit of exposing people to the wonders of being outdoors and the responsibilities we have in maintaining what little wilderness we have. I'm totally against unnecessary bureaucracy, but I am against irresponsible behavior more so. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Um, but have to have a license, we have to have a license to drive a car and need to be qualified to do so, which costs us money. No one complains about that. If we misbehave in our driving, we can lose our license. Maybe a similar system could apply. If this were successful, it might lead to better access laws in England also. Just a thought. Eventually, it could be part of the natural, national curriculum and youngsters could all leave school with a wilderness license. Maybe dreaming here. <laughs> Sorry for such a long question, but it came to me after listening to Ask Paul Kirtley episode 11 with regard to uh, two of the questions asked regarding access. Thanks, Mick. Well, some good and well-considered questions there, Mike. And first of all, I'll say well done for taking the time and effort to clear up that disgusting mess which you discovered near to where you'd been out for a hike. Um, I think, to in part, you answer your own question in saying that education is key. Um, and I think it is down to education. Um, I think enforcement would be extremely difficult. Enforcement is already extremely difficult. It's not, um, you know, we have good access laws, but the access laws don't say, yes, you can make a big mess. Yes, you can damage the land. Yes, you can leave fires unattended and, and still burning. Yes, you can leave beer cans lying wherever you want. The access laws simply don't say that, yet people still do it. Um, and the reason they do it is because they're, they're lazy, they're ignorant, um, they think somebody's going to clean up after them, just as they do in towns. You know, the way people behave in towns, um, it gets cleaned up. People are employed to clean the streets, people are employed to empty rubbish bins, people are employed, employed to take trash away. Um, people get uh, conditioned into thinking that somebody else will just clean up their mess for them. Um, so people need educating generally to take responsibility for their own shit, literally and figuratively. Um, they need to take responsibility for their own stuff, they need to take the time to, to tidy things up, and they need to understand what it is that they're damaging, both in terms of the actual nature that they're damaging, um, the aesthetic that they're damaging, um, as well as potentially their right to access the land, and they need to be educated on that. That could be done in schools. You know, we've talked before about whether or not people should be taught first aid skills, should they be even be taught basic 
survival skills. P people should, you know, I think people should be taught about hypothermia, hyperthermia, how to deal with people who are diabetic, how to deal with people who have anaphylaxis, how to deal with people who are having heart attacks. All of that stuff should be taught in school. People should be taught more about how to look after themselves. People should be taught more about how to have a healthy, balanced diet. People should be taught more about how to integrate uh, exercise into their, into their daily lives because w we do games and PE and sport and things at school, but we're not educated on how to train on our own, what, how much we need to do. Um, none of those things are taught at school. All these life skills are not taught at school and how to enjoy and access the, the countryside and enjoy and access nature could be part of that. You know, I did various subjects at school. I did general studies, I did social studies. Um, those general classes could be extended to include those sorts of things. Um, and, and personally, I think they'd be more useful to people, those practical skills. Um, I think it would be extremely difficult to enforce a license. Um, we all see bad behaviour on the roads all the time, um, even though that behaviour is technically against the highway code, um, it's, some of it's illegal, certainly it's not um, safe, and yet people still do it, um, either intentionally because they don't care, because they get sloppy, or just because they've forgotten what they learned when they did their driving test many years ago, they've just got into bad habits. And even so, even though our roads are policed, um, our roads are patrolled, they have, uh, they're policed with CCTV cameras, people still do lots of bad things on the roads. And clearly there are lots of cars on the road. So percentage wise, most people behave themselves quite well, but we all see, every time we make a journey, we all see people doing stupid, irresponsible, thoughtless things on the road. And that's with a licensing system and that's with a, a large amount of money and resources thrown at policing it. I really don't know how you would police a wilderness license um, other than having somebody standing at a roadhead or a trailhead checking licenses and not allowing people into an area um, and again how do we do that you know how, look at something like um, Glastonbury the, the lengths that have to be taken there to stop people getting in without a ticket even that's even a relatively small area of countryside and that's as but you, you take the point I'm making if you have a large national park with hundreds of miles of, of boundary how do you stop somebody going into that without a license um, you, it would take a lot of resources so I think um, what you could have is maybe somebody to do some basic training um, where they're shown to understand um, how to clean up after themselves, how if they are going to have a fire, um, whether to judge it's appropriate or not. So some circumstances it's just not appropriate to have a fire, so they would know not to have a fire. And if it was appropriate to have a fire, where to have a fire, how to have a fire, um, how to minimise the damage, how to minimise the disturbance and how to clean up after themselves and the various other aspects of leaving no trace. If you had a license to, to show that, maybe you could be allowed to camp in places where other people weren't, but it still won't stop people doing that illegally. It will, won't stop people doing stealth camping um, and all of those sorts of activities which go on because it's just very, very difficult to police. Um, so I think at the end of the day, it's about education. It's about shaming people who do bad things. It's about, you know, we've got more access to social media and platforms where we can say this is bad behavior and show examples of it and photographs and ex ex expose, even if it's not exposing the people, just say this is, this is not acceptable. Um, 
and saying this is acceptable those things do rub off it takes time it's not ideal but i honestly can't perceive how given the lack of resources that would be available how we would ever police stopping people who didn't have a wilderness license going into wild places i think the best we can do is try and educate people and maybe over time introduce some of those aspects into young people's education and again encouraging them to be involved in scouting encouraging them to be involved in duke of edinburgh awards where they're outdoors they're appreciating nature they're appreciating their effect on nature with good leaders um, that that can be shared with young people and give them the respect i think that's probably the best approach i think you're the beginning of your second part of the question it's about education and then if you do see somebody doing something that's inappropriate maybe approaching them and, and not being confrontational but just saying hey guys hey girls perhaps tidy this up don't think what you're doing there is appropriate you have you considered that you're damaging this without getting into um, a confrontation with them because that's just going to polarize people and um, you know again it's about education and it's about being you know gently moving things in the direction that we want to go rather than being confrontational because I think you know confrontational attitudes ultimately don't don't get you to the point where you want to be um, that's my view um, I'm not saying I'm right I'm just you know that that's that's the view that I have about I think it's about education it's, it's, and it's beholden on all of us who think um, nature and, and the wild places we enjoy are precious to try and educate everybody that we can in as many different ways as we can. That's why I, one of the reasons why I make these videos and it's one of the reasons why I write a blog It's to try and share how to do things, best practice, how to get the most out of your outdoor life and how to um, be as respectful of nature and natural environments as you can be while enjoying what they, what they can offer you. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can, as a, as a community around these, these um, concerns, and these interests we can we can have some influence on wider society as well um, so thanks for the question Mick um, be interested to know what your thoughts are in response to my answer you've always got some very thoughtful um, things to, to say and write so looking forward to having a comment from you in response and seeing what you what you say maybe we can carry the conversation on in the comments below this video below this podcast on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk Okay, well that brings us to the end of this episode. Just to remind you that these are now available on iTunes. If you use iTunes at all, um, and particularly if you use iTunes to subscribe to podcasts, please subscribe this, uh, to this podcast there. It helps me get this podcast up the rankings on iTunes, get it in front of other people who are interested in outdoors-related podcasts and get more people getting the benefit from these answers and getting the benefit of the questions and also hopefully encouraging them to ask some good questions and you get the benefit as well. And again, just going back to Adrian's question um, before, if you can do anything to help me, it would be to share... Um, the way that you're consuming this, if it's, if it's my blog, share the link at the top of the page. If it's on YouTube, share the link at the top of the page or use the share um, functions underneath the video to share it on your social networks in the groups that you're members of. If you think this is a particularly good episode, it answers some good questions that you're interested in and other people benefit from, please share it um, because then we build a community around this. We get more great questions, we get more answers, we get more information and um, that's what this is all about. So thanks again, thanks for watching and I'll see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care.